the Twin Cities have erupted into sort of massive citywide protests that, of course, depending on what news source, it's either going to be called looting or rioting or protesting. Yeah, the New, the New but, York Times, um, uh, uh, I think, deck on this is like... Uh, <laughs> It, it, to to be expected. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I don't even really think we, we we need to go into any detail about who covered what, how. <laughs> right. right. You yeah. you all yeah. know how this maps, and I'm pretty sure at this point you can all figure out how the coverage is breaking down. Yeah. The uh, New York Times was like, uh, but the protesters' often abusive approach was. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they took that line. They took that line out of um, Larry Kramer's obituary and put it into this article right, uh, exactly. about the protesters. That's exactly where I was going with that. You're <laughs> welcome. But some people got some TVs. That's great. Yep. Yeah, and a bunch of uh, heroes took back a uh, police station. Yep. Yep. Did you guys see uh, sort of like this uh, situation with the Target Lady discourse? Oh God. Um, no. Yeah. So I guess um, in some of the let's shall we call it redistribution activities that are going on in Minneapolis, people were fucking up a Target. People yeah. are fucking. Good. <laughs> people are fucking. We can be. Pr- we can be proud of that. That's okay. Like, <laughs> While people were liberating their possessions from a Target, so there was a white disabled woman in a wheelchair stabbing people. Yeah, literally like, and the, you can see there's a video of her and she's like holding a knife and she lets a white woman walk past who's like also engaging in like, you know, taking back property from the Target. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then a black guy comes out and she just like straight up goes to knife him. Oh yeah, my. So, yeah. Was uh, she so, invo- so it's was happening. She, was she trying to like, like, protect the target or was she just kind of getting this target survived 9-11 yeah I, <laughs> it's I, a very brave target i don't know but the, the, the shitty thing is that um of course the video of this like of her has been reposted a bunch of times because the crowd um retaliated because she was knifing knifing them. people yeah. in target as as you do she's like knifing people in target and um, someone I think took video footage of it and it got posted online and the crowd retaliates and like disarms her because she's mm-hmm. again, stabbing a people. Yeah. A menace. Yeah. And racist old white lady. So <laughs> unfortunately though, uh, the video keeps getting reposted and it's getting like a little edited. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's been posted as like, holy shit, look at a crowd of black people in a target turn on a disabled person, mm. um, which it is obviously that is not an accurate description of the <laughs> events. No. But, uh, as I was saying to Artie this morning, like, fuck, I'm going to have to mute a couple words today because of course, like she turns out to be an ambulatory wheelchair user. So, so a um, bunch of other people are being like, she's not even in a wheelchair, which is like, oh okay. no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I agree with you. This like target lady got what was coming and like 
fuck her yeah, and like because a bunch of people are going to be like well actually ambulatory <laughs> wheelchair users do exist and it's like that's not the point the point is that like, <laughs> yeah. the she video is being like <laughs> racially motivated <laughs> racist stabbing stick to, of people yeah, stick, yeah. To, stick to attacking her for being racist and stabbing not yeah, for like, being yeah. a quote-unquote faker right yeah, yeah like don't, don't go there like no one needs to go to the waste no. and abuse line like yeah. she's already been stabbing people in a target because she's a racist bitch yeah. like you've got enough to work with so anyways well, shout out to everyone um seizing their property back in the twin cities solidarity well, well on a lighter note um someone from someone from minneapolis uh posted that apparently that specific target uh, because a lot of people might not uh, know this, but like, so Target is headquartered in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's like from Minnesota, um, which I only really know because I was born there. But um, they that particular Target is like the Target that corporate uses to test out new uh, like surveillance and loss <laughs> prevention policies. <laughs> so it's like kind of perfect, actually, mm-hmm. that that's the one uh, that got targeted. Should oh we God. go ahead and like dive into our our main topic for the day? Yeah, and and yet related because the police. Yeah. What do they What do they exist to do? Protect yeah. private <laughs> property, property. Um, yeah. and to yeah. prize property over human beings. And we're going to talk about property today. <laughs> to uh, to uh, yeah, put uh, put the value of private property over our human capital stock. <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like people get really upset when you come for their property. We saw that with the Civil War, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Death Panel, the official podcast of Cutter Laboratories. Yes, we gave a bunch of children polio and a bunch of hemophiliacs AIDS, but we're getting better every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, sorry. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help Thanks. it. Um, where's that pharmacy. reality show? Yeah. Waiting for that reality show to air. You know, it's too bad that, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical laboratories of the 20th century didn't have YouTube to make their very own uh, how exactly we gave a bunch of hemophiliacs AIDS uh, YouTube testimonials. But, you know. Yeah, real talk, though. Today's episode is kind of fun. And I'm really looking forward to covering sort of the entire landscape of cures that we're working with right now on COVID. And I say cures with like enormous scare quotes in the COVID space. And I think before we get into where that is and where all those pharma companies stock prices (laughs) be going, um, I think it's good to maybe check in on sort of the current state of things. I'm sure everybody's probably seen footage from like the Ozarks pool party thing that happened where it's just you know, a lot of spring breakers are celebrating and things are reopening in every single state. And that's part of the the double blind trials that they're running, right? That's. uh... (laughs) Oh, yeah. People are already uh, people are already there are already op ed columns out there encouraging us as a society to engage in bold, courageous experimentation um, and uh, liberate yourself from being without COVID. I mean, that's what mass surveillance of the public is really for, right? (laughs) For the trials. And I mean, my my, my point to these things is like, yeah, we we already are. It's just that uh, the control and treatment groups aren't randomized. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Nor controlled. Nor controlled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think it's, uh, we've got the definite possibility of the sort of quote unquote second peak coming Mm -hmm. a lot sooner than the fall um it seems to sort of almost like sort of pop up and then 
balloon almost like it's like really infectious or something it's wild <laughs> it's crazy and <laughs> well i mean it's it's telling that even like the who had to put out a statement saying okay you know how all those models before said like okay maybe expect like a peak in the fall um yeah uh, like a second a second peak in the fall well guess what if you're going to reopen all the states or if you're going to reopen a bu- if like a bunch of uh, economies in like other countries around the world are going to reopen, well, guess what? Your like second wave is actually going to come a lot sooner. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but the sort of the way that people are talking about the new cases that we're starting to see come in has changed a little bit in the past two weeks. So mm-hmm. obviously the FDA is reporting that water is wet and in states where there is reopening there is not a recovery of the economy really and there is also an increase in cases Mm -hmm. um and there's a sort of interesting thing that i'm seeing people say like i think it was like scott gottlieb did the did the rounds saying like oh well you know i'm just a little concerned that if people don't stick to like guidelines when when we're reopening that we're gonna see like more than the anticipated like acceptable amount of of cases and death right (laughs) so before like two weeks ago it was like oh no no, we're gonna reopen and we should be good now it's like oh well we're gonna reopen we just have to make sure that when we reopen we don't have like an inordinate amount of cases well yeah i mean this these these standards that i mean this has always been the issue but it's like these uh this this is also what you get i think when you have like the mckinsey slide deck approach to uh, epidemiology and public health, mm-hmm. which is that like they have to express things in natural. Their whole thing is like expressing things in natural language that that the, uh, you know, business traveler can understand. <laughs> and um, then you get things like, well, criteria like, OK, well, in order to reopen, we're going to need to see a 14 day decline in in cases and then like washington dc and they're reopening they're just like oh yeah well we were seeing a decline except for these five days when <laughs> they <laughs> spiked which we switched. so like but we're For just gonna days. take we're just gonna take those out yeah and right. and if you take them out then you know we're we've been declining right. um so like this is this was sort of this is sort of bound to happen because yeah all of these ideas are entirely malleable and I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. and like, well, okay, but, the economy isn't rebounding, but obviously that's not really what it's about. It's the, uh, the spiritual side of the economy, right? The, the feeling <laughs> of the economy working <laughs> is more important than actually producing, uh, you know, transactions or growth. We've all just lost that free market spirit. The, yeah. I've heard a lot, like I've heard a lot of people, a lot of the, the boomers in my life have used sort of this, like, well, Cuomo's like policy on reopening, you know, is like is very scientific and therefore <laughs> it like is it's like really, you know, like smart. And to them, I keep trying to reiterate this point that it, sure that the like numeric sort of like rules that they set for themselves might have to do with science in some way, shape or form. But if you then just let like the incentives of, you know, sort of like their political fortune mix with that. That's not scientific at all. Like that that has nothing to do with epidemiology. Like if they're just going to ignore even the guidelines that they set for themselves, which obviously politicians have tons of incentives to fucking ignore any kind of sort of like reopening policy is just going to be 
bullshit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the best example of this is the news outlets that will run headlines, both the like statistics show that if we had started the lockdowns like two weeks prior, we would have saved like tens of thousands of lives and also simultaneously run headlines that are like signs point to lockdowns not having a meaningful statistical outcome <laughs> on like coronavirus <laughs> death. It's like, uh, but I mean, that's, I mean, that's, and it's not just news outlets, obviously, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. um, Cuomo, who we've mentioned a lot, for example, just the other day went out and said, essentially, like, congratulations, New Yorkers, like we, we uh, were so brave, and we bent the curve. So now it's time to reopen again. Now we can get back to work. This is like what he said while he was reopening the New York Stock Exchange. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the reality is, is like, yeah, if we had opened up, if we had locked down two weeks earlier, but also like, if we had, um, you know, maybe released people from jail or like housed the unhoused, also, we would have had a very significant drop in cases, or if we had done literally something in the past 10 years to make like long-term care and nursing facilities like not hellscape literal austerity hell holes yeah like it would have been a very different situation as well i mean it's if you look at the the case numbers from place to place like the population of people that are either like housed like cattle one way or another is being mm-hmm. like just decimated i think I think it's also telling we have people like uh fauci for example just this week he kind of adjusted his own vaccine timeline he was yeah. he had been kind of uh being substantially more at least more realistic um mm-hmm. before saying like oh you know 12 to 18 months although again that would be like a historically quick turnaround i mean we just b and i were just uh like catching up on our history of like polio as for example do. as you do <laughs> you know casually uh, you know, Wednesday, night. Wednesday night. Yeah. Um, they, and you know, that was like a 20 year process, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know like what, as we'll talk about way later, uh, we all know what happened during the AIDS crisis, uh, yeah. even for example, and we don't have a vaccine. Yeah. For did that you get exactly, your AIDS so. vaccine yet guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Robert R. Redfield has a, has a bridge to sell you too. But oh. you know, so like Fauci, for example, has like adjusted his, uh, target down for a vaccine for like within the next year. Mm. Um, and because of this, let's say float of a bunch of very positive, market speculation i suppose Mm -hmm. uh on on the ability of uh the the great the uh great all-seeing all-giving uh very generous pharmaceutical industry uh (laughs) to produce a vaccine or an effective treatment um yeah yeah i think we so yeah because but because of that like that it's worth talking about how uh so many of those things are kind of unfortunately extremely overblown yeah um right now we've got a couple of different things out there that you might have heard of, like remdesivir or hydroxychloroquine, but there are also dozens of other companies who are trying to get into this right now and get these sort of stock boosts um, mm-hmm. in the market. And I think, you know, we we're thinking like sort of in this in the way that we went through pandemic or something like that. Like it would be helpful to just sort of get like a bird's eye view of like the lay of the land, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I think and, this is. I, I'm, I'm happy that we're doing this because I think this is the kind of issue that uh, is really. I think it's so complicated. Like the 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 markets for these uh, products don't. Well, they're not really. 
not really markets, but like the, the whole sort of like political economy of like governments financing for these things. And, yeah. uh, the, there's just sort of like the create, it helps to the, the opaqueness of it helps to facilitate magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and, and the other thing is it's not as if like on the, the left or, uh, you know, among sort of like political leaders on the left, the like nationalization of pharma or like actual reforms that would help to like upend this system, which has, has failed us in producing a vaccine. It's not like that's the top of their uh, agenda. I mean, it's, it's for for a variety of reasons. Um, there's sort of like, I guess more immediate relief issues that are sort of on the table. But I think if, if we want to actually move out of this like period of time, a, a vaccine will be necessary and we're just not going to get it under this particular arrangement. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like so. the most, the most extreme, uh, I mean, and you, you know, I think if, if, uh, at any point the either, you know, doing something like creating a, uh, a completely like state operated or, uh, you know, nationalized pharmaceutical industry or, or body was going to be a, uh, big ticket, uh, political issue that could have been, um, you know, in, in recent history that could have been become part of the national conversation in that way. I think we would have ha- we would have seen it probably come out of like this 2020 primary basically. And the furthest mm-hmm. left thing that we got from this, I think was the, there was a proposal from the, uh, Bernie Sanders team basically to create a federal, um, like a federal uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing mm-hmm. arm, mm-hmm. Um, but even that was basically to like manufacture generics uh, and only really to do so in the case that they had to like secure eminent domain basically over right. uh, things that were like certain companies wouldn't agree on, uh, you know, equitable pricing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so that is, that isn't even like. Um, you know, almost within the scope of what we're talking about. Although they yeah. did, they did propose uh, changes to and significant increases in uh, federal funding for research, though, as we'll sort of talk about here, actually simply sort of like throwing more money onto that fire mm-hmm. uh, isn't really going to help us, particularly in a situation like this. Yeah, no. I mean, so we sort of have this like problem here where we definitely we're going to require biopharma's help to if we have any hope of returning to something like resembling like quote unquote normal life in the world. Right. And unfortunately, because of the way that we've sort of allowed not just like domestic biopharma, but in like, frankly, the entire international industry from, you know, the beginning of the supply chain from like the manufacturers yeah. of mm-hmm. uh, APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients to the PBMs. And the, and the uh, blood banks that we've talked about before that lure right, people right? Uh, yeah. across the border. Right. Uh, so it's like from the plasma, et cetera, from the source material all the way down to the PBM, the distributor of the pharmacy, the logistics company that, that was contracted by the PBM. This is like a, a problem from the entire pipeline. And mm-hmm. we've sort of allowed this industry to receive lots of public funding, like internationally speaking, not just in the United States. We also at the same time have had almost no, uh, as, a, as a culture, almost no input as to the direction of pharma, right? Mm-hmm. Like pharma takes public money and then does goes for what they're going for which is to develop drugs for a market, mm-hmm. not to de- develop drugs for a public good. So we've seen in like the past 30, 40 years, like barely any new vaccines because it's not 
marketable because you get it once or twice and it's not like um a well, super give, attractive product you know you give you give people the vaccine and then the disease goes and away they, they get better <laughs> right, yeah. right. you know and i think I'll, and or like you've also seen this with antibiotics like when was the last time you heard about a brand new antibiotic uh never because ugh, i i didn't pay attention to that sort of thing until recently and they haven't developed one during my lifetime <laughs> <laughs> you know, and which is amazing considering how many people every year get, you know, hospital related um, antibiotic resistant infections, how many more strains of like bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics and how, you know, like how many people could benefit from them. But no, 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 because that's like we're happy to give them money, but. There's no strings as to like what you're producing must have a public good. And there was a sort of like huge shift in the industry. And I think, you know, the sort of dominance of oncology research Mm -hmm. started to dictate the types of like products that they were interested in developing and researching. Mm -hmm. Because oncology, I guess, unlike uh, virology, uh, there's not a cure for cancer. So you're going to have patients for a while. It's it's right? more sustainable. It's a it's a better profit model, uh, I, I mean, suppose. My my disease, uh, my disease, my one of my drugs, rituximab, right? Second largest grossing drug in the world. It's a Mab drug. There are more Mabs than there are antibiotics now, basically. And this entire class of like inject- Mab is monoclonal antibody. Yeah. So a lot of these like injectable medications and and um, really complex, expensive production procedures are obviously fantastic, but um, functionally speaking, it does not reflect like the demand necessarily of like public health. It re- reflects like a combination of like what they can get funding for and what they can make money off of. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think the best way to go through this actually would be to, cause some of these, some of these drugs that we'll talk about are pretty, uh, explanatory of what we're talking about right now. So maybe we can just start going, uh, through them because yeah. like, well, people have, so for like for instance, the first one that we'll talk about because we're going to basically talk about like most of the um, stuff that's been there. You know, there are only a handful of drugs that have been talked about as like treatments for COVID nineteen, especially those that are like um, you know pretty glowingly discussed in the press, mm-hmm. um, like remdesivir, which we'll get to. But then you know the big one obviously is like hydroxychloroquine, mm-hmm. and that's you know. I, and when I say the big one, I mean culturally, specifically yeah. because yeah, yeah. it's the. Uh, it's our uh, big boy president's drug Fave. of choice, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next to British speed. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say next. <laughs> yeah. British, next to those, that, British Sudafed. Yeah, yeah those yeah. Sudafeds that he's just been whipping his entire life. Yeah. What do you got to lose? Yeah. Well, I mean, try it. Yeah, if you're... Get the honestly, yeah, if you're if you're his age, it's just you you take whatever makes you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so hydroxychloroquine is a drug that is used for malaria, but it is also taken by many patients with lupus. I think Trump's like invested in one of the companies or something. He owns stock in it. Well, some yeah, shit he like has. That. It's yeah. I mean, that became like a huge thing, but it's really it's just that he has like shares in a mutual fund. Uh, basically, right. or in he has shares yeah. in some fund that part of the fund owns like uh, shares in Sanofi, so it's like he has like a something like a thousand dollar stake. In yeah, Sanofi, I don't think this is, is like, basically like this is not like a nothing. grand conspiracy. This is just stupidity right. in my mind. I'd say that's like secondary goonery. 
compared yeah. to this like, is not the gotcha that liberals think it is basically no, no. yeah no. so no. um he's just regular dumb it's okay right. he's just regular say, yeah, dumb he, sometimes he can, he can be he, he can is be also stupid. corrupt but sometimes he is just dumb right and and sometimes the two of those uh interact in interesting and new ways and sometimes they don't <laughs> so it's essentially become this um this definitely like global meme of hydroxychloroquine we've had uh, reports of people trying to like do diy versions of it which have been like finding similar chemicals and Ugh. stuff like fish tank cleaner and yeah, a lot of people have like died and the bad side of it too is that on the clinical end it's not doing much better than on the fish tank drinking end um <laughs> <laughs> The WHO this week halted the study that they were doing because of safety. So far, there has not been anything that's really been like super promising clinically that's come out other than the fact that it can well, beyond that. It's actually been definitely increased be the harmful. risk of heart attack. Yeah. 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 Well, the, Lancet, I mean, the Lancet study, which was yes. which was like a retrospective study. But um, what they looked at was just the, the health conditions that emerged from people who took hydroxychloroquine had like a high risk of uh, arrhythmia, abnormal mm -hmm. heartbeats that, that resulted in like cardiac arrest or that like right. had the potential to result in cardiac arrest. Which right. is like a super bad thing to have already. If you're having to have cardiac problems uh, given to you by a drug, basically when you are trying to fight an Off illness that can create blood clots and yeah. <laughs> uh, and the like, it, like it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense basically that this would actually like adversely affect outcomes. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, on top of that, the sort of like overblown media hype has created uh, supply side shortages for the patients who rely on this drug as yeah. maintenance therapy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's any range of uh, like very serious and some and like fatal if untreated autoimmune diseases like lupus to running the gamut to people who have like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so it's pretty sobering to see how ineffective it is. It has a 34% increase in the risk of dying while inpatient in the hospital and 137% increased risk of developing arrhythmia. And this is based on the Lancet study, yep. which, is a, right. which is a study of 96,000 patients. Yeah, right. which is pretty bad yeah, that's pretty it's a pretty damning it's result. pretty damning yeah the, there you know there's a lot of gray area in like farms in testing for safety and testing for efficacy like we've talked about this a lot um the lancet study about hydroxychloroquine chloroquine and uh chloroquine macrolide i think was the third one uh it's not there's no gray area it's just <laughs> not not good nope yeah bad well, it's idea. Not, well it's not a randomized controlled trial but as far as like observational evidence goes, it's uh, it it puts let me put it this way it uh, it should not inspire the kind of uh, uh, just confidence. blind naive confidence that it is yeah. like yeah. All right, so maybe moving on, you know, everybody's heard of the sort of hydroxychloroquine situation. Maybe moving on to remdesivir, which is the other one that is... Which has inspired a lot of big headlines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, uh, by death panel fave Gilead. One of our mm -hmm. favorite yeah. favorite drug companies. Not to mention a lot of a lot of stock price movement in the last month or so. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about we've talked about uh, remdesivir before, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong. It was basically a shelved antiviral product that uh, Gilead had developed like a few years ago and decided 
to not take nah. yeah just like <laughs> no you know they like, like they pulled they basically pulled it off the hot. shelf dusted it <laughs> off and we're like this looks like it fits and yeah. then just sort of mm-hmm. smashed it into a square peg in a round hole which is I a mean, kind of indicative part yeah. of the whole process right because it's te- i think it's telling that some of the first big moves that uh we saw um on the the sort of like pharmaceutical response to uh, COVID-19 was like obviously yeah you do want to go back and like check other like check older drugs or stuff sure. that didn't work. yeah um, but then they do become they have become so much of the focus of the response um, in a way yeah I mean I feel like okay so yes this is this is like what happens right these these drugs like they go through the safety trials um, they pass safety trials phase one they start you know maybe maybe they get to like phase three and they actually start testing for efficacy in humans and it turns out that it doesn't really do shit and it's not like uh, Viagra where it also it doesn't do what it's supposed to but it happens to give you a boner so like we'll push it to market for that like right. remdesivir didn't kill anyone but didn't really like help with what it was didn't give anybody for. any boners so. no. Yeah. no boners <laughs> no boners yeah so um, you know it, it, like this happens all the time with these drugs but the fact that this is sort of how the industry exists is part of the problem because like the idea of a global pandemic is not um, unprecedented, new, novel, unbelievable, or crazy. It's like, a, how do we fundamentally think about biopharmaceuticals in relation to like public health, right? And right. we think of them as products. And so they're developed like products now. They're not developed like public health initiatives. And yeah. So when all of that information, it was like a decade ago that all of this information is coming out, like we need to be prepared for sort of global pandemic level uh, virus. Uh, It's not like, I mean, the defensive markets is always like, oh, they're really efficient processors of information about stuff. And it's like the signal that national health agencies and and epidemiological monitors was like, we're, we're projecting, we're pretty clear that it would be a good idea to like invest some money in this but of course, mm-hmm. it's not profitable, and so that's what drives the decision. So right. you had these right. people right. who were like studying it, who got you know, you know, well, their studies sort of got shit canned. Well, and right. also mar- markets like fundamentally markets are reactive, right? And like in this situation, you kind of want to be proactive, like <laughs> right. And, you know? and the closest approximation we have to that is to pull shelf drugs that have passed stage one safety trials and see if they're applicable. And so yeah, I right. under you know. This is like, um, but it's not, it's not a stupid impulse to think like, okay, what do we have in the bag? Maybe we have something that could help. But when you have a fucking profit incentive to then like jam those through claiming that they actually work when they very clearly don't like, that's when you have a fucking problem. And that's why this or just like not if I think it's more that like if you went if you have a profit incentive at all, you have a problem because it completely changes the object of your research. Right. Like Mm -hmm. biopharmaceuticals right now become like three or four different categories of product. And in a lot of ways, the fact that it has to be a product uh, sort of changes the scope of the research. Right. And and you could have like biopharma be a much broader scope of research that like also could look into like oh like maybe we need to like look at uh air quality's effect on medication efficacy right Mm -hmm. but that study is not going to happen because (laughs) you can't sell that but that doesn't mean that that isn't an aspect of biopharmaceutical research that we could be 
as a global society like looking into right, right. and and so it's sort of more like well but I mean, the industry itself is just not equipped actually to respond to something like covid because it has been designed wrong well but then also like fundamentally there are like studies like that or study other studies on basic science research are done all the time by the federal government they are right. like and a lot of the things that end up being uh, put into these like again market based drugs are like you know I mean even remdesivir which we're talking about now like was the product of a lot of federal funding mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. initially um, I just mean that there's like no overlap though there you know it's not there well, it's not the companies that do them the companies right. will get up and they will be like since we, we probably won't t- talk about this uh, as its own thing but like Johnson and Johnson is a great example I think because like right now their coronavirus response is essentially being like look at look at us like bravely uh working on vaccine development etc mm-hmm. um like and and like investing all this stuff in r&d when really like most of the basic science research is actually done by like the federal government um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then like there are various like licensing things that happen and then they basically just like run in as a market producer of uh like a drug mm-hmm. again you know again play this as like a big pr move to hide the fact that like their talcum powder was like killing a bunch of children mm-hmm. um uh, or whatever what it was doing giving people like horrific cervical cancer right. and like well, killing like, black women left and right exactly but like horrible horrible cancer so remdesivir i think the most telling thing here if we're going to actually like again go through like the various uh like response drugs or whatever. The main thing is that, again, this is one of the main drugs that you'll see headlines about right now because mm-hmm. always, obviously, there are like big hits that happen or whatever. The, the moment that uh, people, whether it's the NIH or the or in a lot of cases, the individual companies will release like small fragments of data from one of their studies, um, mostly to like it ends up get, giving them like a stock boost or something like that and a mm-hmm. lot of attention on the company. Um, with the idea that like, oh, they could have like the next blockbuster drug to, to like basically treat, um, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with remdesivir, what's really, in, what's really particularly interesting, which a lot of places have missed mm-hmm. was they, um, you know, they had released, uh, information on an initial study despite the, so there was like a, there was a study in China that basically showed that there was like no effect on mortality. Um, that was, that w- data was released more than a month ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was an NIH study, uh, which the the full data of only got published last week. I think so. Um, yeah. And they right. released it. They literally released it on like a Friday night, which is the night, which is like the time when you like release stories to be killed to like not be covered. Basically, mm-hmm. they released it on a Friday night before Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. So like they they top top re- notch. They very clearly like released it in a moment uh, where it would like receive the least attention possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you actually look at the data it more or less shows that while it it did seem to have some efficacy for some people in terms of reducing the amount of time they were hospitalized in total Mm -hmm. for the most severe cases it did basically nothing Mm -hmm. and on top of that overall the change in mortality was Mm -hmm. statistically insignificant Mm. (laughs) i think it's also (laughs) worth noting that this is now the fourth um, thing that remdesivir has been tried on. Um, it was the Gilead's kind of known for creating drugs to treat chronic conditions like Hep C uh, and Aid. surprise, guess what remdesivir was originally designed for was for Hep C. Um, did not did not work with Hep C. 
um, was shelved and then was rolled back out to try with Ebola virus in 2015. <laughs> did not work. Um, was rolled back out for MERS. Did not work. And rolled back out for something called Marburg virus, which is um, fever virus that's very similar to Ebola, but um, is is not Ebola, but sim- works similarly and also mm-hmm. sort of comes from primates. So you know, this is the this is the fourth time this drug has been rolled out and never before has the the act of pulling it off the shelf to test produced such a good PR boost for Gilead than it is now. And I mean, I feel like I feel like there's this thing that's changed. That's hard to so you like thinking about the history of these this like the political economy of drug development. Is Mm -hmm. it like advertising and PR like firms investments in those things since the 1980s are have have you know ballooned yeah Mm -hmm. um like the the PR departments in these uh firms are you know kind of incredible in a way that they really weren't in the era where there was sort of more uh sort of federal regulation of what was Mm -hmm. uh sort of happening and so like there is it's this really bizarre thing which is now um, you can have, and again, it's like, okay, the study doesn't, the study that was released, you know, before Memorial day, that's like completely par for the course for mm-hmm. a, a drug like this. It's just that the things that are not evidence at all, but in fact, just sort of anecdotal fragments, those get treated as if they are in fact the news story. Whereas the mm-hmm. completely normal statistical lack of evidence gets treated as if it is not a story at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's it's giving it's one giving Gilead like the boost of a of a lifetime after mm-hmm. a year of really really struggling. More than a year. Yeah. Yeah. We've been we've been talking about Gilead for a long time. They've had like a year and a half of really really bad um, stock performance, and it's been um, a question as to whether they would be able to even like retain liquidity going forward. And well, mostly because almost all of their drugs are like ending patent protections. Yeah, soon. Right. Like exactly. They're like almost out of patent uh, window. And so this is again, sort of more of a problem of the way that the industry has been allowed to self-regulate and develop, not a problem of like the drug or the manufacturing process itself. Right. This is this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. I'm really happy that you made that like distinction, because I think we're, the way that we're talking about this is uh, I think it can be easy to like mistake just for complete cynicism yeah. about mm-hmm. um, uh, any of these developments. But that's really not that's not the point. I mean, the point is that that the the structure uh, and the way that we finance and you know treat these things as as products is the problem, not the the dubiousness of, of the people who are doing the research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also when then they when they announced that they were stopping the uh, remdesivir study, uh, the NIH spokesperson used a word that has a specific meaning within um, drug trials, saying that it had uh, the data was from like interim analysis and that it had sort of exposed an ethical issue where, um, you know, that the drug was showing like such good results that it was no longer ethical to give people a placebo, but that was actually false. Um, and it, the that was actually incorrect. And they had to like send out people to like correct that in the public record and say, oh, actually, like it was a preliminary final analysis and like we have our data, we're fine. Um, but of course, like it goes out, stock goes up, line go up, doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, 
it's just yeah it's just like antithetical to like what the actual goal should be at the moment mm-hmm. which maybe brings us sort of to our next <laughs> our to next a literal candidate. pump and dump stock yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is moderna's vaccine mm-hmm. so the first vaccine on the list of stuff that we've talked yeah. about yeah so yeah, Moderna is a company that has absolutely no products. It's a pharmaceutical company that's basically like a startup. <laughs> this uh, just some basically some eccentric uh, billionaire owns it. Cool. Um, <laughs> the way that Moderna, Moderna actually we were going to talk about a long time ago and we never got around to it because uh, Moderna basically is um, so it's this is this company that basically it sounds like from reporting from this uh, from this like. Uh, Forbes article from the, which was like a profile of the CEO from I think February. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like Moderna basically was created when uh, this billionaire was kind of convinced by this research scientist that um, mRNA vaccines, which is an experimental type of vaccine, like vaccine development, there isn't a there isn't a existing mRNA vaccine yeah. yet. Um, but it is a theoretical way that you could develop and do a vaccine that theoretically would be faster, which, you know, it's worth saying that, um, you know, we mentioned polio earlier, like the polio vaccine was also an experimental first of its kind, like, yeah, dead virus vaccine. First non-live, yeah. So it's not, you know, that's not to say that, uh, that the, the, that these so-called, uh, moonshot, I guess, that they're trying (laughs) to do with Moderna, um, is not possible. Uh, but I, I I don't know. I mean, just look at the guy. I don't know. It doesn't seem. It, it doesn't. It doesn't I'm, I don't have a lot of faith in this person. But basically, so Moderna, um, they. It's interesting because uh, in this same profile, they basically say that the story behind Moderna's coronavirus vaccine, its uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, is essentially that um, the moment that they got that the, the moment that China sequenced the genome, right, like for the January. novel coronavirus, yeah, mm-hmm. they took that genome uh, data and they like basically like worked on for like three weeks or a month. Um, I think it was 42 days. Yeah. Like a, right. the, a, um, hypothetical MRNA vaccine. Um, and they started, uh, from there, like production. Well, yeah. Produ- production to start trials. So that's why they're able to have, this is why I think there's like the, f- they're one of the first, I think they are maybe the first, uh, that I've seen that has like, put out at least preliminary data on a vaccine trial. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like uh, um, and they're kind of like the Zara of um, <laughs> of yes. medicine. It's just like it's like the fast fashion of medicine. <laughs> as soon as so- as soon as something hits the runway, they're like we got to copy this. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. They've got they've got their uh, they've got an entire production laboratory on like an offshore uh, like oil rig boat that's like or uh, right. not an oil rig boat bay um what's it like a container ship <laughs> yeah like got they got people working in the containers like on overtime synthesizing well not on overtime on slave labor but they, they like synthesizing mm-hmm. uh, anyway satire but yeah, anyway yeah, uh, the, oh god but um I, it's easy to forget so like i'm i'm sure a lot of people will have heard about the moderna vaccine um by now but you know you may not have like put two and two together but if you remember like a week or two ago when there was a news hit that was like um like first study of a coronavirus vaccine uh shows positive results and like a bunch of people just picked that exactly up Mm -hmm. and just like ran with it well that study Mm -hmm. was um the data was from like what eight people or something yeah Yeah. um or 
was it even people? And yet? was it even data? I, I mean, they didn't release a lot yeah, of the data. I, think it was, I don't even there, think there they released the data. There were more than eight people, but they only released data on eight people. Exactly. There were and a bunch of other subjects that they just did not. Re- like, there were 37 subjects. They're like, hmm. Yeah. yeah. And this is also, it's one of only two of the 54 vaccines that are under development that's being tested on humans. Um, They started its human trials on the 16th of March. Yeah. And the other one that's being tested on humans is by a German company called CureVac, which (laughs) definitely seems legit. Um. (laughs) The main, the main uh, real cool thing about Moderna, though, is that basically um, it's the moment that uh, it, the, the moment that they like, again, this is a company that has no product. Product. This, like, this is a brand new pharmaceutical company. Um, you know, they are very much an upstart. So, which means essentially they're, they're, you know, at, at this moment, at this moment, they're like a shell corporation with they, some like intellectual property. Well, they, basically, they right? tried to make and government an, funding. They tried to make a Zika vaccine and it didn't and it really get off the ground because yeah. I think the Zika uh, fear kind of like went away and then they just like, well, also the, they had like one study on it or something and it didn't seem it didn't to work. Like, it didn't yeah. have great results either. But so, um, <laughs> but there, there has been announced. success in animal trials with this type of pr- like process with uh, rabies vaccine in animal trials. So yeah. Far. But e- either way, I think the biggest signal here is that, you know, they, they announced, they got that raft of big, they've, they've obviously, they've gotten a lot of negative coverage recently. Um, uh, of, of course, but when they initially announced, they got like a ton of really positive press. Like, oh, here's this, here's this like novel um, uh, pharmaceutical company that's that like might do the first uh, mRNA vaccine. Um, their stock shot up like two hundred and fifty-seven percent or something. <laughs> and in the last, in like in the time since that announcement and the uh, and their stock price shooting up they're like five of their executives have unloaded a total of like 89 million dollars worth of stock so <laughs> we got a real Theranos situation uh, here I think yeah, I think yeah. that was I think in our in our planning for the episode that this didn't make it into actually we were like move over Theranos we've yeah. got the next grift exactly yeah <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes eat your heart out yeah That's it. the words Moderna and Theranos are chosen from the same list oh absolutely yes. yeah yeah okay well they could yeah. they could so easily be you could swap those names and oh and, for sure and no one would no one would uh, bat an eye I will say though I'm not like in no way is our goal of this episode to convince you that like we are all fucked and nothing will work no. because again like we will require biopharmaceutical developments in order to like regain normalcy and you know reopen as best we can quote unquote, quote yeah. unquote. um but and I think it's important to sort of understand like maybe how an mRNA vaccine works should I quickly sure, give a little yeah, breakdown I don't know about mm-hmm. that actually would that yeah. be helpful? <clears throat> so, yeah. like, you guys know how vaccines work, right? Yes. Magic. So vaccines, work, <laughs> so vaccines work by, like, training your body to uh, recognize certain invading cells by identifying, like, the proteins that are produced by the cells, mm-hmm. right? So, like, when you, like... So, you know, it's your immune system. So it's essentially like a vaccine puts a little bit of small or inactivated doses of the virus into your bloodstream, parts of the whole disease, which basically then provokes the immune system into mounting a response. You develop the antibodies, which you then retain. And when you do come in contact with the virus in the future, the 
theory and usually in practice, depending on the range of efficacy for the particular vaccine, um, your body already has the antibodies, so it does not um, have a chance to reproduce because you already have the way to identify and kill it, right? Mm -hmm. That's a vaccine. So uh, it requires being able to either safely inject someone with like a piece of the virus, just the protein or dead virus. Um, an mRNA vaccine is different, actually. It's a synthetic version, basically, that injects the body with cells that give the body instructions to build the protein itself. So like it kind of instead of putting something in to teach the immune system, it like teaches the body to make parts of the virus, but not the whole thing, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then the immune system can detect those proteins and craft its defensive response and generate those antibodies. So like in theory, this would speed up production because you wouldn't have to like grow, sterilize, separate, kill the virus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to create the vaccine, which oftentimes I think it's like flu for flu. It takes like six months to grow the virus. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So like once you identify the uh, the like genome of the virus, then from there forward, like you have a, at minimum six months to just generate the product to inject into someone. Um, so like the idea with an mRNA vaccine would be that you could like significantly speed up the process because you don't actually have to grow anything. It's just like a being able to put the RNA in there, which is like the part of the DNA that tells the DNA how to reproduce itself yeah. so that mm -hmm. the body can learn how to mimic and essentially imitate these proteins, creating the same like teaching relationship to the immune system. Does right. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Was that helpful? Quite. Very yeah. succinct. Okay. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think the point is that there are really only, we're relying on this very small number of uh, firms to save us from the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're, right. we're putting our trust and our sort of our investiture of hope in a like system that is like fundamentally flawed uh mm -hmm. and and really you know if, if it ends up happening it's going to be a major stroke of luck right um exactly. rather than yeah. anything that we like try to design and i think the the question is like is the is the way that we're is this sort of reliance something that we should in this moment, just like continue to have, or mm -hmm. should we actually think about like, maybe this is a moment like other times in history where the, the balance of like public risk and the inability of this sector to really address those risks or do anything that, that we've sort of already invested money in it to do, uh, as like, as governments, uh, uh, you know, whether or not that's, that's at all uh, possible and whether or not we need to now, like those other moments of crisis, nationalize, um, yeah. the industry are really, f and really like fundamentally reconfigure, um, the way that this research is done. And then ultimately once a, a sort of effective vaccine is found, how we, uh, do the distribution mm -hmm. right, exactly because i think mm -hmm. fundamentally we not just the coronavirus uh pandemic but also really like the last at the at the very least 30 years basically of uh drug policy and the development of the pharmaceutical industry into this like behemoth i mean 
think about um, what is it? There, there was a there was one uh, quote that I saw when when we were uh, reading sort of when I was reading sort of like business press stuff on, on mm-hmm. one of these companies. I think it was Johnson and Johnson um, that some analyst was saying like, oh yeah, uh, I was talking to a pharma exec the other day who I won't name, but like they they said you know when I got into this industry it's like someone who's like a veteran basically who's been ar- around for a long time mm-hmm. um, you know when I when I started in this industry when I was a younger person like we you know we were one of the most trusted uh, impressive p- professions mm-hmm. or whatever and now we have a rating lower than big tobacco um, <laughs> in terms of public trust and you know it's not it's the the thing is it's difficult because it's like the tr- the lack of trust is not undeserved um, that doesn't mean that like. You know, I, I think this this so often gets boiled down to a thing of like, it is both it is both like true that the pharmaceutical industry is like laced with uh, greed and basically just has the wrong priorities specifically because frankly like the state like which sets up the the fundamental operations on mm-hmm. which like the fundamental parameters on which these companies can operate like has basically been truant for like decades mm-hmm. um on this like this like the state has not done anything to manage this there's no and there's no kind of like centralized coordination of to any specific uh to, to any of these responses uh including obviously coronavirus so you're going to end up with this uh this like wash of stuff and it undermines fundamentally public trust in medicine and science and creates right. fucking anti-vaxxers right. Right. um and so you know yeah i think that this is on one hand it's interesting because on, on one hand, I think the fundamental critique of the industry to, to me is like, yeah, this is something that belongs in the hands of the people. It's like this, yes. this, this must be a public good. There's no reason it is much like health finance in general with what we've advocated for like Medicare for all much like health finance in general and health insurance like must be a public good like the development and manufacture of drugs. Um, like also by necessity must too, because otherwise I think it will redound to situations like this, where it's just sort of like absolute chaos, um, studies being focused in like either the wrong direction or just, or even just like, I guess the, the sort of second component, which is the, the press response, which actually mm-hmm. in some ways to, to me, my, one of my biggest criticisms and the reason that like we're doing this as people who are also like, you know, are doing, we members of the press? Well, no, we're not members of the press, <laughs> but we're doing a media product, right? Yes, so, like, true. as right. people doing a media product, I'm like, fundamentally, the way that even you know other like leftist publications have talked about stuff like the these like vaccine candidates or remdesivir are like. I don't know. They're they're like the the way that they talk about them is often so like uh, either limited or like literally buying into. I mean, certain certain things which I won't name here. But like when the first remdesivir study like media hit went out and it was like, oh, there's a it's showing promising results or whatever. Certain outlets sort of just like ran with it, you know, right. mm-hmm. um, and like without without like questioning the underlying without the underlying information even having been like produced yet. And while a bunch of people uh, like doctors and, and uh, researchers on, on Twitter were like, uh, hold on everybody. Like, come on, we don't, don't just like jump and be like, yeah, look at Gilead did it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, which is the problem with like to like throw back to Gilead for a second, that the way that the information for this was released is that like the press release of the summary went out before the clinical data went out. So, and then the FDA was like, okay, go for it. Before the clip, like before there was broad access to the actual data, which came out like I think 24 hours later. So, and Fauci promoted it too. Yeah. Before, right. Absolutely 
unprecedented behavior that is entirely market-oriented because it goes against every understanding of how to properly do this in the benefit of public education and health. Like, Mm -hmm. it drives me nuts. And, And you know, it's funny because this the sort of international borderless model for you know bio like bioethical collaboration like exists right that i would not be here without it like if my doctors couldn't call doctors at another hospital and be like what do you think Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and that's essentially what happens in pharmaceutical production because everything is a trade secret or (laughs) proprietary Right. You see this with biologics and the biologic biosimilar regulation debacle, which is they don't know how to like regulate the production of biosimilars, which are like generics of these like complicated monoclonal antibody medicines, because the, you know, the the main manufacturer, the holder of the patent property doesn't want to give up their proprietary secret. Right. So then you're like Mm -hmm. having to sort of work backwards. And in what in what logic does that make any sense if the end product is supposed to be something that saves people's lives? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think it's like the 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 way that we think about or the way that it's like typically conceptualized is that that these things there are like these these property rights here that have to be respected above uh, human life. But it's it's really funny because if you think about all of these episodes of nationalization, like after 9-11. We nationalized airport security. Right. TSA mm-hmm. did not exist before mm-hmm. 9-11. We just nationalized all airport security. Um, we even like use eminent domain to do things like uh, transfer private property, not for public use, but to other private entities mm-hmm. for econ- <laughs> in the name of like economic development. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and so like this idea that like government, it's somehow like beyond the pale to imagine government just seizing, uh, control of, uh, pharmaceutical companies because they can't do the things that they have been, uh, it has been assumed that they can do is, is really absurd and sort of goes against a very, very long history of, uh, government yeah. nationalizations mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. I guess. I guess this is kind of the the funny thing. At least the uh, at least in a certain way, the uh, the like the the policy response is uh, pretty pretty consistent overall because they have done basically uh, everything in the least efficient manner possible. So like <laughs> you know you give the you give the small loans or you give loans to small businesses uh, like kind of uh, crossing their fingers and hoping and praying that they'll keep people's uh, jobs uh and then they obviously don't and 40 mm-hmm. million, 40 million people get unemployed um and in the same way that like the you know they have the fed like take the completely uh like unprecedented route of uh securing like cor- like buying corporate bonds <laughs> um mm-hmm. you know I, I feel like that like that response is very similar to the way that we basically just like shovel a bunch of research money into like funding projects that ultimately become like the the intellectual property yeah, of like, pharmaceutical companies. We are the biopharma's pay pigs. The taxpayer yeah. is the pay, is yeah. biopharma's pay pig. Absolutely. The yeah. taxpayer. Exactly. And it's <laughs> and it's also it's also uh yeah, you're you're all getting fin domed. 
Yeah. Um, well, and, that, and, and my well, point, I guess, just, just, sorry, just to just to finish yeah, yeah. to wrap up the the point. So the point is basically that in a certain way, and and to, to some extent, I'm sort of borrowing from like the uh, some of like the statements that um, Nathan Tankus has been making in his writing recently. But in a certain way, like a lot of these industries are already basically propped up completely by federal funding. Right. Like we're, we're already we're putting already, the money in, and we're asking nothing in return. What the fuck is wrong with us? We're already <laughs> essentially putting in the mechanisms of nationalization without doing any of the nationalizing but it's kind of it's kind of amazing too because it especially with pharma the things that you know we sort of allow to happen in that space that every country in the world allows to happen in that space i mean in a lot of ways you could (laughs) argue that like the infrastructure and power of pharma supersedes that of like any other any government you know um they have their own rules and all we do is pay into it and there's like absolutely no reason that it needs to be done this way nor is it the most productive way to do this research right uh the competition does not breed like good science that's not what it's about that's not how it should be done (laughs) no Um, uh, like also you can just check with like literally any scientist and if you ask them would you prefer to like compete with other fucking scientists or would you prefer to like share data they're they're not going to be like the competition will motivate me i am ready yeah yeah i mean i feel like we've been having this discussion for a while and obviously this is not the first time we've we've done it but i think it it kind of confuses me like there's a pretty easy solution um Mm -hmm. to to this problem uh we've used it a bunch of other times in history um it like wouldn't be hard to write the legislation to do this. And, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's not something that is, um, you know, as, uh, as difficult as, as it might seem or as complex as it might seem. Mm -hmm. We have like Mm -hmm. a a huge, like blistering, uh, failing, uh, industry. And there's a pretty easy, uh, solution here. But the thing that, the thing that is, we talked about this earlier in the episode, but like the thing that's confusing to me is why, more, um, I think whatever you want to say, left, left politicians, uh, or whatever, quote unquote progressives don't really, this is not something that like meets their, it's not the kind of top 10 list. Mm-hmm, it doesn't make right. it into the listicle is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. know why it's yeah. sort of confusing. Why? Because it, it, it seems very much like if you want to like assert the idea that like capitalism has failed and there is a very good other solution that you don't have to be a socialist per se to understand or appreciate, uh, because right. a lot of researchers, a lot of researchers and people who work in this space of vaccines who are by no means, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even associated with the left are yeah. like, Hey, nationalization is not just an optional thing that we could do and might make some things better. It is the only way that we are going to get out of this uh, right. morass. Mm-hmm. So like why this seems like a, this seems like a gimme, you know, what, right. like, what, what right. is up with this? <laughs> well, and, and, and also people don't have uh, the same sort of like, like when you talk about like nationalize, you know, n- name an industry. Like, I don't think there is anybody out there who really has like an attachment to sort of the, like a Aesthetic independence of pharma as sort of like this like 
you know, like marker of like American. Well, Chip Roy for one. Um, <laughs> no, but, yeah, but I, I, oh. I just think the average person doesn't have the, the average, the average person in America doesn't have super strong feelings about like the independence of pharma. Well, I think that's so, what, that's where like them having a lower approval rating than like big tobacco maybe comes yeah. in. Cause you could be like, uh, I think, you know, there, I've, I, I could see it being, I think the problem maybe is that even like the groundwork hasn't even been, uh, laid for it mm-hmm. or something like that, where you, we basically, uh, people, people are dissatisfied people, you know, you have even like the, like the, the sort of, um, the way that, uh, healthcare has been sort of as a, as a political topic, like rationalized into, um, the like centrist discourse or the, or the, like everyone from the like hard right conservatives to, uh, like the mainstream democratic party is like, Oh, we got to lower drug prices. Well, like here's if you want to lower drug prices and if you, if you are actually concerned about like the cost of not the other types of care, all the variety of types of care that people need, which we should just be all, you know, federally handling under one tab as a single payer. Like if you're really worried about like all of those costs, but also if you, you know, have any, any inkling to be like worrying about, like again, as we've been talking about, like what drugs are being developed, um, what uh, what drugs are like, how you know, like, or even like the fucking like the opioid crisis, the opioid right, epidemic, right. for example. Like, if we that that fundamentally is like an immediate example, the opioid crisis of why mm-hmm. uh, of why like profit incentives in pharmaceutical production are obviously mm-hmm. a negative to society as a whole, mm-hmm. right? And so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe like it's just that again, like the 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 groundwork has to be done to like open that up as a possibility because I think that so much is so much of like discourse, you know, again in the mainstream American society, mm-hmm. anything that like you'll hear in like talking heads again from left to right, not left, but mm-hmm. from Democrats to the far right or whatever, um, is predicated on like this uh private industry private property private uh prosperity and the fundamental like a god-given right for pharmaceutical companies to profit um when even when it like contradicts with people's immediate interests well Mm -hmm. i mean i think a good example and maybe something to talk about in this is sort of like the role that like biohacker groups like open insulin project uh sort of play in this because it's it's interesting because like the only sort of like models for democratizing the industry still rely on the idea of it being a marketplace and them Mm -hmm. being products that are sold it's all about like letting more people make it versus changing the category of the thing itself from not a product to a uh, social service or a human right you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. when does like when does water become a product versus a social good? Like, why does pharma have to be a product if it could be something else? And I think that in a lot of ways, like even the sort of most radical stuff, like with um, do you guys know the story of like this drug called Glybera? No, no. So Glybera was a uh, Novartis. Uh, drug, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, and it was <laughs> made to treat an ultra ultra rare blood disease called lipoprotein lipase deficiency. Um, and that it's a genetic disease that primarily affects children. Um, this was basically, I think, the first drug ever approved for an inherited disease. Mm-hmm. And 
It cost a million dollars per treatment. Novartis in 2017 stopped making it because there was no market for it because it's a rare disease. So a group in Germany got together and started trying to make it and got the cost down to $7,000 per dose. (laughs) And yeah, that's cool and fascinating. But the thing to me that's wild is that like our only solution is like more products. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like a, or maybe not <laughs> even more like, products. Yeah. I think a lot of people who engage in it would not uh, agree with the characterization in that way. Although I think that you're right, but like, it's like um, taking the production, the capacity for production into like the hands of a, a like a separate small cell of people or whether or whatever, right, yeah. as opposed to like there. I guess sort of the fundamental point in in a way the main reason I think that we all talk about the state so much, right. Is because the state is a way of leveraging the state could be, I guess a way of leveraging a large, like the, the collective mass of people and a collective ownership of things like, you know, the, um, like this, this drug that you're talking about, which treats an extremely rare disease that has a explicitly like small, use case like, right just yes. to be but like yeah you're not necessarily you're like you're like a small group of people taking it upon themselves to like treat some people that's gonna that's that, only one way of doing it yeah yeah it has, i it mean has, yeah or, it has a very small outlay you know right and or the what the state is act functioning as right now is just a sieve for i mean it really is a sieve for just profit production right. yeah. And yeah. exactly social, and really the socialization of risk like until until mm-hmm. like the 1980s, until Baidol, any U.S. financed um, like research breakthrough was in the public domain. Like the right. the mm-hmm. like we had, uh, you know, sort of public control over those uh, patents, and then now we have the these patent monopolies. So that we're yeah, we we basically uh, finance all of the the costly, risky stuff, and we allow business to like keep all of the rewards. So we're already sort of like, it's not as if this is like so far in outer space. Uh, we're already clearly using the state to just like prop up these companies. Right. Um, it's not like, yeah, their patents aren't even like courts don't even find that, that these patents count as property under the fifth amendment. Right. <laughs> um, so it's, and beyond that, it's like, then on top of that, the state has taken over a lot of the liability for safety Right. By mm-hmm. by from these companies and they're duly responsible if something goes wrong, not just for the manufacturing side, but for the certification and safety oversight side. Right. So it's like we're actually in the absolute worst position possible as right. a state I, in right. relation to pharma because we have we are giving them money. We are sheltering them from liability and then we are customers. Right. right. I mean, we're uh, we're literally getting fin-dommed. It's just, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, the situation will arise that I, I think what we're spelling out here is that I wouldn't make a bet on the idea that like these companies, these, this handful of companies is going to produce what we need within no. a time scale that, I mean, you know, they're, they're all of these, I mean, part of the thing like about all these like uh market, uh, these like release of information and like the boost of the stock price is that it all sort of glides or like dovetails really nicely with this sort of uh, unbridled 
need for optimism about the future that like (laughs) NBC has or whatever. Um, And so like, but I mean, I think it's all a very risky bet that we're going to get anything that works in the timeframe that people expect. So like, we're going to have to confront this issue at some point very soon uh, because Mm -hmm. what we have is simply not going to produce what we need. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should talk about some of the the other things that have that have just briefly check in on on what's up with uh, COVID surveillance developments before we move yeah. on. What do we think? Because that kind of kind of ties into it. Because like if if pharma is going to not get their shit together, um, what's the other? Yeah, we're half? not going to get our shit together to take pharma over, right? Then. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, then then we're just going to need to surveil thing, ourselves. <laughs> What are those other evil conglomerate of, of companies doing in terms of, uh, you know, proposals for like carceral digital techniques in order to contact trace and control the virus the other way because pharma won't get its shit, shit together kind of thing, right? Yeah. Welcome um, to the, the death panel market making seminar. There are lots of opportunities <laughs> in the coronavirus space. <laughs> <laughs> so... Have you guys bought your immunity and, uh, tracking ankle bracelets yet? <laughs> no, we have to as a as as the as the death panel, we have to uh, buy them as an entity and supply each ah. of them with their own tracker, basically. Gotcha. Oh, okay, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta ensure productivity and make sure that uh, you know the little bell can go off the moment that you come near each other. Well, I mean, so this is we didn't talk about this on on the uh, the last public episode, uh, but we did like in the response to uh, Zeke Emanuel's uh, JAMA paper on like why we're going to need immunity passports or why they're ethical. Like one of the, you can resp- I didn't know this, but you can, you can do the comments on a JAMA paper, <laughs> which is like really, wow. Hottest, com- uh, pretty hot, fun. hottest comment section on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well the, and then one of the people who like left the comments was somebody representing a firm called immunity ledger. Um, mm, who's love. like, who's the, the description of what it is on the, um, I, I think has to be computer generated. Uh, <laughs> go, it's like today we fa- are faced with unprecedented challenges that are crippling the economy and healthcare institutions. Government local recovery effort is a short term gain and now turning to global partners to secure long term safety and op- open economic flow, comma, which will require a global collaboration that we have never seen before. Yeah, that's a Markov, <laughs> a that's a Markov generator. That? Yeah. That's a Markov <laughs> generator. <laughs> <sighs> there was there was oh, only boy. a matter of time before somebody somebody saw the words immunity passports you know who's in blockchain and was like hello so yeah yeah, i i uh this this seems only only inevitable to me yeah yeah i mean i think that uh you know it's it's telling that this is not the only one there are a bunch of immunity uh passport startups actually like shortly after we uh, released that last uh, that last public episode that yeah. uh, Phil's talking about the one uh, where we talked about Zeke Emanuel's paper. Um, a bunch of reporting started coming out, uh, notably including from the Financial Times, saying basically like we uh, like de- you know detailing a bunch of immunity passport uh, companies. There's also like. Uh, I guess I think possibly the same day or like the day after um, the the CEO of Overstock, um, you know, the company Overstock.com. Yeah. Like it sounds like mattresses. Well, Overstock, uh, the Overstock CEO guy is like a huge blockchain proponent. Like they were one Uh, of the first uh, companies uh, where you could buy stuff online with Bitcoin. 
uh, overstock. So, um, but you, you know, he, he like gave this, uh, interview saying how key immunity passports, uh, would be to like, make sure that like, Oh, you can just continue economic activity normally because then you have the, the security of knowing that, uh, you, I don't know that, that, that I guess at some point recently that. someone got like an all clear on a test that so far has been pretty spotty, unfortunately. Also, uh, we don't know if you get immunity yet and yeah. how long it lasts. We just know that people so, like, have antibodies. It's but. so great to provide people with some certainty about a variable that it we're absolutely uncertain about in any other capacity. <laughs> right. I think I think the uh, other thing though that is that is really telling because obviously there's immunity passports as one issue and then there's like contact tracing is something that is like held up even by people on the left as like the the like solution or whatever. Um, and you know it's telling that also again when you talk about like where there is a where there's a power vacuum there will be a private company that steps in to try and profit yeah. off of it right and i think and they the might most, be blockchain yeah well and and outside of even blockchain the the funniest thing has been seeing the emergence of these like companies that are um uh again these like private companies basically that are trying to literally in some cases like take their like take products that they use uh for like you know, again, literally, literal ankle monitors, like yeah. uh, ankle <laughs> monitoring bracelets. Uh, one of them digital is, carceral solutions. I think is called, the category is called. <clears throat> one of them is called Arista Flow. Um, <laughs> this is from reporting from the in- Intercept. Another is called Redpoint Positioning Corporation. Don't love that name. Great. Um, and then uh, my favorite is a company called Supercom. Oh boy. Uh, which supplies <laughs> um, basically supplies tracking technology specifically for carceration like they specifically make uh products Uh. for uh what they call secured boundaries projects uh like border crossings and home Mm. confinement yeah Yeah, house arrest and uh making sure that people don't uh you know get over to uh to a country that's gonna kill them um i can't wait for the inevitable like merging of a bunch of different narratives of like the contact tracing merges with the fdrification like narrative and they're like (laughs) we need strong social and ethical means of digital surveillance we need ethical house arrest um (laughs) but the the best part about this about supercom though is that their product uh what they're trying to sell basically to governments and and to tend to private companies uh other companies um that is that is to like assure that people basically assure that people are doing house arrest and essentially like quarantining in their own homes um is, i like the ones that are like you're supposed to wear it around your neck and it beeps if you get too close to your coworkers. <laughs> so their product uh that's supposed to that's trying to keep people uh quarantined in their own homes is called uh they're calling it pure care no yeah <laughs> Is that like a Pure white care. supremacist health clinic or something? <laughs> Basically. Uh, nope, just a just a just an ankle monitor. It's a Nazi um, free clinic. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fucking yikes. These yeah, I mean uh, now I can't even I'm not who even gonna thought who thought that like the Amazon care would be like maybe the least funny uh product innovation we would cover this year like the the stuff we were talking about with the like best buy senior care (laughs) shit Mm. yeah it's um it's a brave new world it really did get dark real fast Um, i mean or funny 
depends yeah, it's on how you look at it. Yeah, it's always been this dark. Yeah, and, and, yeah exactly. It's, <laughs> it's always been this dark. We just haven't been covering it for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway. Um, moving on. So, yeah, that's that's basically what we're... That, frankly, that's the thing. Yeah, if we don't... That's, that is our future pure pure care pure care pure like mm-hmm. being slapped with a pure care bracelet um and needing like a blockchain based immunity passport or whatever <laughs> to like go down to the auto zone that's on fire is like <laughs> that is our future <laughs> that is our future if we don't uh already that's, that's ridiculous you're, you're assuming that people still have money to own cars that's true <laughs> <laughs> well isn't that why the auto zone's on fire because yeah i mean anyway i mean so um let's cap this off with a little i don't know i don't want to say tribute what do i want to say tribute's fine tribute okay yeah so let's um let's cap this off to a little tribute to larry kramer who died yesterday he uh, is an author playwright and um aids activist founder of gay men's health crisis and one of the founders of act up um he died at 84 yesterday we posted some quotes from a amazing letter he wrote i think it was 1988 right Artie? yep yeah that he wrote to fauci in the midst of the aids crisis and um so yeah uh r.i.p to a king fantastic mm-hmm. activist mm-hmm. um we definitely need to pay respects to the old guard and you know now is our time to like take their tactics and you know build on that right mm-hmm. yeah um and, you mean uh, their often abusive approach? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Love the New York I, Times I'm, I'm all down for an often abusive approach. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. I, apparently, like, it, like Kramer was famous for, like, when people would get, like, too stuck in the minutia in meetings, he would, like, he was famous for, like, basically, like, slamming his foot down and being like, what the fuck is wrong with all of you? Everyone, like, come on. Like, let's get back <laughs> to work. So, you know, we just need that vibe right now. That's the energy we need right now. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Vince is going to do a reading of the letter that Larry Kramer wrote in 1988 to Fauci in the midst of the AIDS crisis and it's um, fire. So it's rad. Absolutely. I think with that, that about does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the death panel. You can get an extra bonus episode by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Yep. Um, we should definitely like, if we had any extra money, like we should definitely get into uh, pharma investing. Cause I bet we could just like, <laughs> yeah, speculate. I was going to say either that or, uh, either that or have like a, f- a fake, uh, a, a fake pharmaceutical company that we just used to, we just put out articles about just the Martin Shkreli method. Oh God. Yeah. No. Yeah. I already have oh. the Bloomberg terminals guys. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Shkreli yeah. this shit. Support our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We're going to, um, you know, collaborate with Shkreli, who did you guys see? He asked to be released from prison in order to respond to the coronavirus yeah, pandemic. And they were like, nah. <laughs> yeah. but um, everyone else like, no. should be <laughs> released. Everyone except for pharma profiteers. They can yeah. stay in yeah. jail. Um, anyways, no one needs to be in jail. That's about it. Let's, uh, let's end the episode here. Please stay tuned for Vince's reading of Larry Kramer's letter at the end. Um, support the show, leave us a reading review. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Yep. Bye. Bye. I call you murderers. An open letter to an incompetent idiot, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases.
I've been screaming at the National Institutes of Health since I first visited your Animal House of Horrors in 1984. I called you monsters then, I called you idiots in my play The Normal Heart, and now I call you murderers. You are responsible for supervising all government-funded AIDS treatment and research programs. In the name of right, you make decisions that cost the lives of others. I call that murder. At hearings on April 29th before the House Subcommittee on Human Resources, after almost eight years of the worst pandemic in modern history, perhaps to be the worst in all of history, you were pummeled into admitting publicly what some of us have been claiming since you took over some three years ago. You admitted that you are an incompetent idiot. Over the past four years, $374 million has been allocated for AIDS treatment research. You were in charge of spending much of that money. It doesn't take a genius to set up a nationwide network of testing sites, commence a small number of moderately sized treatment efficacy tests on a population desperate to participate in them, import any interesting drugs, now numbering about 110, from around the world for inclusion in these tests at these sites and swiftly get into circulation anything that remotely passes muster. Yet after three years, you have established only a system of waste, chaos, and uselessness. To quote Representative Henry Waxman, Democrat from Los Angeles, Dr. Fauci, your own drug selection committee has named 24 drugs as high priority for development and trials. As best I can tell, 11 of these 24 are not in trials yet. Six of these drugs have been waiting for six months to more than a year. Why the delays? I understand the need to do what you call setting priorities, but it appears even with your own scientists' choices, the trials are not going on. Now you come bawling to Congress that you don't have enough staff, office space, lab space, secretaries, computer operators, lab technicians, file clerks, janitors, toilet paper... And that's why the drugs aren't being tested and the network of treatment centers isn't working and the drug protocols aren't in place. You have $374 million and you expect us to buy this garbage bag of excuses? The gay community has been on your case for three years. 36 agonizing months, you refused to go public with what was happening. Correction, not happening. And because you wouldn't speak up until you were asked pointedly by a congressional committee, we lie down and die, and our bodies pile up higher and higher in hospitals and homes and hospices and streets and in doorways. Meanwhile, drugs that we have been begging that you test remain untested. The list of promising untested drugs is so endless and the pipeline so clogged with NIH and FDA bureaucratic lies that there is no roto-rooter service in all of God's Christendom that will ever muck it out. The gay community has for five years told the NIH which drugs to test because we know and hear first what is working on some of us somewhere. You couldn't care less what we say. You wouldn't answer our phone calls or letters or listen to anyone in our stricken community. What tragic pomposity. The gay community has consistently warned that unless you move quickly, your studies will be worthless because we're already taking drugs into our bodies that we desperately locate all over the world. Who can wait for you? And all your scientific protocols are stupidly based on utilizing guinea pig bodies that are quote-unquote clean, you wouldn't listen. Why should those who can obtain drugs take the chance of receiving a placebo? We tell you what the good drugs are. 
you don't test them, and then you tell us to get them on the streets. You continue to pass down word from on high that you don't like this drug or that drug when you haven't even tested them. There are more AIDS victims dead because you didn't test drugs on them than because you did. Whom are you covering for, Tony, besides yourself? Is it the head of your animal house, the invisible Dr. James Weingarten, the director of the National Institutes of Health? Is it Dr. Vincent DeVita, the head of the National Cancer Institutes, another invisible murderer who lets you be his fall guy? Or Dr. Otis Bowen, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services? No doubt the biggest murderer on this list? All you doctors have continually told the world that all is being done that can be done. Now you admit that isn't so. Why did you keep quiet for so long? You may be the best that will be given us. The cries of genocide from this Cassandra will continue to remain unheard. And my noble but enfeebled community of the weak, the dying, and the dead will continue to grow until we are diminished. <laughs>